you know, we get asked all the time, who are your listeners? Who subscribes to your podcast? You know, how many do you have? So I thought you may be curious. We, at our peak month, which was uh, June of 2018, just last month as I'm recording this, we got 242,000 listens. So the podcast has been growing, doing really well. We're close to uh, approximately 600 podcasts that have been done. Not all by me, thank God, but many of them have been. I wanted to know something. Um, who are you, listeners? We, uh, from the data that we've seen, there's a lot of early adopters, uh, people that are you know anywhere from like 30 to uh, 55 that are interested in tech and all the new stuff that's coming out. But that may not be accurate. So I wanted to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, can you send an email to support at Future Tech Podcast? And let us know a little bit about yourself. You don't have to tell us your name or any of that stuff, but if you just let us know, why do you listen to the podcast? What do you get out of it? What some of your favorite episodes have been? And what do you want to see more of and hear more of in the podcast? And I'd love to accommodate you. And I'd love your feedback. So again, please send an email to support at futuretechpodcast.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Cole Rosengren. He's a senior reporter at Waste Dive, and we're going to be talking about um, the effect of China's import restrictions uh, on the U.S. recycling programs and uh, the dynamics that are uh, that are going on there for the waste industry. So, Cole, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. Good. I'm glad to be talking to you. Um, essentially, I guess I'm a, a reporter in some way. You're a reporter in a in a different way. But uh, tell me what what's going on right now with um, the interplay of waste between the, you know the U.S. and China, and and how our new trade tariffs are going to be affecting it. Sure. Um, so yeah, historically for the past decade, if not more, China has been uh, growing fast, as we all know, and as part of that growing industrial economy, they've needed a lot of uh, raw materials, resources, scrap, and so they've kind of become the world's destination for. Uh, what, whatever goes into your recycling bin or perhaps uh, industrial and commercial recycling as well. It was all heading over to China and they're using it to make new products, perhaps to sell back to us, but also to build their own infrastructure. And that was the relatively symbiotic relationship for quite a while. We began to see early signs that that might be faltering. In uh, 2013, they launched what was called Operation Green Fence, uh, asking for better quality in the material coming over, and that shook things up a bit. But it was still kind of status quo for the most part. Everything was humming along until last year, uh, just about a year ago. This will be next week, actually. So good timing. Uh, they announced what's called their national sword policy. Um, and to, to clarify, actually, national sword was announced at the beginning of 2017 as a broader uh, smuggling crackdown. But the recycling effects came in July 2017. China basically said it would uh, stop taking 24 different types of scrap commodities from anybody, not just the U.S. And so that hmm. includes a broad range of things. But when you look at, say, what are you perhaps recycling at home or in your office, uh, really what that hit was uh, mixed plastics, uh, plastics number three through seven, if you turn over the containers and look at those little codes in the triangle and also uh, mixed paper. So 
junk mail, uh, newspapers, magazines, that stuff. And then on top of that, they said, whatever we do still take has to be a lot cleaner. Um, before they would accept maybe 5%, what we call contamination. The average, they, these things come in huge bales. Um, and so if a bale of cardboard had maybe a plastic bottle got stuck in there, they'd let it slide or a little bit of food or something. But now they say, no, it needs to be 0.5% contamination. If it's not, we won't take it. And perhaps uh, the company's on the hook for sending it back home at their cost, which is quite expensive. So anyway, that has all taken effect as of this year has sent the industry scrambling. Uh, the For the longest time, recycling economics worked because it is a valuable commodity. And so that was how a lot of contracts were built, both the private customers, also the cities, counties, and that is not the case anymore. So recycling all of a sudden costs a lot more money than it used to. And uh, there's a lot of ripple effects, to say the least. Well, you know, I'm not very well versed in this industry, but from what I understand, you know, China would take a lot of waste and, I mean, just essentially throw it into giant vats and cook it up and it created all kinds of toxic conditions for their people. And uh, who knows what it did to to China's rivers and and lands. And it just seemed like it was uh, our garbage dump. Is that what the case was? Or is it, uh, what do you think is behind this, first of all? And what do you think the impact's going to be to China and to the U.S. because of this? Sure. Um, So, yeah, that is not inaccurate. I mean, you know, there are, of course, some facilities are more modern than others over in China. And, you know, some have been growing, you know, they're very robust paper mills. Uh, One of the, if my math is, or excuse me, my facts are right, the richest woman in China actually owns a paper mill company, uh, Nine Dragons Paper, and she's done quite well on this. And they have these robust facilities. But there's a lot of, yeah, very small family-run spots. And some wonder, actually, that if that's what started all this. There was a documentary um, called Plastic China that came out a year or two ago, and supposedly uh, President Xi saw that and was appalled at uh, the conditions people were working in and also in the image it portrayed of the country. And so that is what some say is kind of what started this um, as part of what China is now calling their blue sky campaign, basically saying um, they want to clean up their own environment. And so that for them also includes uh, starting doing more recycling themselves, which they were not doing before because they're running out of landfill space. Uh, They're building waste energy facilities at a very rapid pace, more so than anybody else in the world right now. And so that's China's kind of trying to clean up its own house right now. Um, And yeah, that is definitely accurate. I mean, it's what was getting sent over there. The contamination, what was going into this stuff was not really being paid attention to. And for the most part, not that people didn't care, but it just kind of worked. You know, China didn't make too much noise and we just kept sending it there. And that's how it all ran. Um, And now we're starting to see that in some of the other uh, Southeast Asian countries that have kind of become the de facto next steps for this. Um, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, Thailand have taken their own steps to say, not necessarily fully do what China has done, but uh, limit what they will take as well, because they've gotten saturated all of a sudden. Um, And so really more and more what it's going to need to mean for the U.S. and other countries as well. It's um, the U.K., Australia, many others are facing this is how do we get our own self-sufficient uh, closed loop recycling infrastructure built here at home uh, and not necessarily have this global trade network going on anymore. And that is something that takes time, probably years and a lot of money. So it will be not a quick fix. It may be a good thing. Yeah. Because uh, I would guess, again, if China closes its door, the first instinct would be, all right, well, let's try India. Let's try other countries mm-hmm. to, you know, to deliver them this stuff. But if uh, a lot of countries are saying no, then right. Oh, what are we going to do with it? What, um, what about the fact that let's say we we buy a whole bunch of products from China and then uh, you know when we want to recycle them, is there any way to put pressure to say, hey, we bought it from you, 
we're sending it back to you once it's done. Is there any uh, yeah. remedy to do it that way? Uh, it's a fair question. I mean, it really comes down to uh, the companies behind it, right? Who Who's making these products. There is a kind of regulatory concept out there in the world called a extended producer responsibility. We see this uh, more so in Europe, also in certain Canadian provinces, this idea that, you know, whoever's making this packaging, the company at hand, be it Coca-Cola or Unilever or whomever else, should then have some kind of financial responsibility for ensuring their cycling system works once that product, you know, leaves the store. And that concept has never taken off here in the U.S., strongly opposed, but we do see it in, there's inklings of how it could work. We see it, for example, um, electronics or mattresses or, you know, batteries. There are programs like that in place where the producers are on the hook in certain states. Um, And even the bottle bill is a form of that in some way. You know, customers also pay into that, but so it could be done, but in the short term, no. And the big reason there is because the U.S. Um, actually doesn't have a national recycling policy. It's all decentralized to the state, county, and local level. And so it would be quite a lift and pretty surprising for any kind of really cohesive, you know, country-to-country exchange to get worked out like that. So of the, the stuff that we were sending over to China, is it are those are the things that are particularly difficult to recycle, or was it just convenient? To get rid of uh, a lot of a lot of waste over there. Now that we have to probably mm-hmm. deal with it, are we in trouble? You know, is this stuff recyclable? That's a good question. Um, well, so it depends on who you talk to, right? Some folks would say, particularly the plastics. Um, there's a big. It's hard to miss in the news these days. A lot of stories about ocean plastics, marine debris, uh, straw bands, plastic bag bands, and so in that kind of energy, some folks had set, taken this as an opportunity to say maybe we could just cut down on our use of some of those plastics to begin with. Um, and so that's coming up. I mean, technically anything can be recycled. It's just a matter of, is it cost-effective and environmentally sound to do so? And really the cost piece really came down to cheap labor. China had cheap labor. Uh, that's not so much the case over here. And so all of a sudden that price tag gets more expensive. Um, and then, but the biggest problem is on the paper side, uh, that mixed paper by volume made up a very large portion of what's in our recycling bins. And, um, the big challenge there is a lot of U.S. paper mills have closed. Many have relocated overseas. And so there's only so many places to send it, really. Uh, and that, in particular, the mixed paper is what we're seeing kind of get displaced out of the system here. Sometimes that means it's going to landfills or waste energy facilities, or a lot of places are stockpiling it, just hoping the markets will improve and maybe they can move it. But uh, because it's paper, it doesn't last that well for that long. If it gets wet, you've essentially lost all the value there. So it can be done, but it's a very regional situation, too. If you're in a state with a paper mill, maybe you're doing fine. But if you're not, you're kind of screwed right now. You know, it's funny. You have to think that everything has gone electronic and we don't use much paper. But do we use just mm-hmm. as much as we used to or less or more? What's the state of it? Yes, yeah, good question. Um, So definitely less. Well, I should correct myself. I don't know overall how it's all even out, but definitely different types. You know, we don't, of course, uh, phone books, newspapers, far less common in the waste stream now. Um, but as we think about what the industry calls the evolving ton, you know, what's in that average ton of recyclables that a facility gets, um, it's a lot more cardboard now. Uh, we think of the rise of e-commerce, Amazon boxes, of course, meal kit boxes. So there's more of that out there. Um, and so that's, again, I don't know if it's totally taken its place and those are treated as separate commodities going different places, but there's, but there's still a pretty good chunk of paper left. You know, if you look at your, your cereal box, your junk mail, your, receipts from the store, which I guess technically shouldn't be recycled anyway. Um, it is still around and plays a, a larger role in people's lives than you'd think. 
Yeah, I guess that might, you know, my garage becomes an Amazon box landfill, you know, periodically. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Maybe Amazon itself is responsible for all the cardboard. I don't know. That yeah. Hey, some folks have said that. They have um, gotten more engaged in the recycling space in the past year or so. They've uh, signed on as a funder to a kind of what's now the leading national nonprofit on this called the Recycling Partnership. They it's not a regulatory structure like the producer responsibility I mentioned, but it's sort of a way, a voluntary way for big companies to throw some money into it. And then that gets used to help uh, local recycling programs and things along those lines. So they're, they're tuning in more people think now we'll see to what end. So what's is the shift already happening? I mean, has China imposed this ban or these new restrictions yet, or they're about to, or where are we at with it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, they took effect as of uh, January this year. The um, the the bans on the products, and then the new uh, quality standard, the contamination standard, that took effect in March. And so yeah, we're there for sure. And then there was an added surprise of they basically just kind of froze all import licenses for the month of May, which threw everyone off. So very little is going. There's still material moving from the U.S. to China, but drastic drop in what was going over there. Um, and yeah, like she, we mentioned, she's going to Southeast Asia, India, um, depending on where you are, perhaps Canada or Mexico, or trying to find new domestic uses. Or in some cases, we're seeing, I don't want to say this is the majority by any means, but there's a fair amount of programs around the country uh, either temporarily canceling some of the recycling programs, cutting certain items out of it, saying well, you can still recycle, but we don't want X thing anymore. Um, and I expect more of that to happen, at least for the next few months, as annual contracts come up for renewal and terms get negotiated. There's a lot of things left to shake out on this. So what do you think the effect's going to be over the next six months or a year? Yeah. Um, well, we've already seen it uh, play out. That it's going to get more expensive to recycle. Um, whether that means, say, you're a business, you have a restaurant, for example, you know, you may well be paying more already. Um, and if you're uh, local government, it all, the contract structures really vary, but more and more, um, the waste and recycling uh, collection and processing companies that often service those contracts are have been looking at ways to change the contract terms for a while to kind of de-risk them. A lot of times it was built off this idea that recyclables, they are a commodity and they can be quite high value sometimes. And so it was sort of a risk reward thing, you know, based off if prices were up, everyone was making money, everyone was doing great, but if they're down, the company would take a hit. And so they're trying to find ways to spread that risk out, either share it with the local governments or perhaps put all the risk on the local governments entirely in some cases. And so that's where we're facing some of these questions. Governments, especially small, you know, there's no big cities that have canceled recycling. I don't expect them to, but if you're a small town or even a mid-sized city, you might say, can we justify this anymore? Um, For example, I live in a a city of 80,000 people called Somerville, Massachusetts. Our recycling costs have almost quadrupled in the last year. And the city stands by and they plan to keep going, but some others might not be able to if their budget wasn't in that place. And so it's going to be some tough choices, I think, coming up. So what do you think some of the reactions would be? Like uh, producers would add costs to the, you know, with the price of items go up, certain ones that are you know, that used to be recycled, would cities add extra tax to be able to recycle? What, what do you guess will be the fallout? Yeah, yeah. So on the cost side, yeah, you may well see costs go up either. Some cities, as a resident, you don't see the cost of recycling. It just comes out of your taxes. But other cities do have direct monthly bills like utility. And so you might see a raise there. Um, we're also seeing a real uh, ramp up in uh, education around what should go in the bin, what can go in the bin. Um, that could be as simple as a PSA or some cities are doing pretty robust programs where they 
will inspect your recycling cards at the curbside. And if there's too much bad stuff in there, they won't collect it that week. They'll leave a note behind or they might even uh, give you a fine, a small fine to try to change that behavior. And so that's there's a big push underway right now to figure out how to communicate that to people. Um, and then in the the near term, yeah, there's a just a kind of a plea for action at any kind of government level. For the most part, it's at states trying to see, you know, can we get some government funding to help ramp up infrastructure development for, say, new paper mills or new plastics processing facilities, new, you know, kind of get that demand there. But when you think about the average supply chain, this is a little unique. It's an inelastic supply. People just keep putting stuff in their bins every week, regardless of if anyone wants it or if it's worth anything. And so the stuff keeps piling up and we need to find a way to kind of create that, what people call demand pull to make sure manufacturers can use it and want to use more of this stuff domestically to make their products. Well, I mean, sure, people are going to throw stuff away, but um, if manufacturers no longer make something available or change a formulation so it uses a different material, then it won't show up in the waste in the first place. I I guess maybe there's pressure maybe to be put there. I don't know. It's true. No, and that's certainly um, been talked about. And that's the big trick right now with because recycling isn't regulated nationally, there's nothing binding. Yeah, this is a sense of accountability. Who's accountable for making recycling work and who's accountable for fixing it? Um, there's a lot of finger pointing right now from, you know, and I, it's just everyone. Everyone has a different idea of whose problem this should be to solve. And so the manufacturers definitely play a role, but they don't have to. You know, and there's a, like I said, they've, a lot of the big names have joined a lot of great groups and funded nonprofits and are part of voluntary discussions. But for the most part, everyone still kind of reacts to what they make. You know, they say, well, here's some fancy new packaging, figure out how to recycle it now. And that cycle is going to continue for a while, I think. And to their, not to say they don't care, I'm sure, of course, you know, everyone has sustainability goals and big images, but they make something and it can't be recycled. It's not necessarily their problem, (laughs) you know, and that's uh, a hard conversation to have, but it's happening right now. Does any of the stuff we send to China come back and get recycled or does it all just end up in a, a slag heap over there and we never see it again? As far as what we, what we are still sending to China now, you mean? No, what we used to send, they they stopped taking, you know, all the plastic. Gotcha, centers. gotcha. I think you said number three to seven, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so no, I mean, some, so some of that's gone to the countries and some of it is, yes, it is finding new homes here in the U.S. Um, but yeah, some of it is also not getting recycled. And I think there's more of it, there's more more stuff going to landfill or waste energy than we know. Um, a lot of states don't actually have recycling requirements. And so... Uh, Companies or cities don't necessarily need permission to dispose of stuff. They, For the sake of transparency, they certainly ought to be telling their residents. But that, as we've seen, that doesn't always happen either. And so we've seen a lot of reports from many states around the country now about temporary disposal, things happening here and there. But I have a feeling there's more than we know about. So, yeah, it's not looking great at the moment. It can come around and everyone's optimistic that it will. But in the short term, it's kind of tough right now. Hmm. Is there any is there going to be any government funding? Uh, to figure out how to recycle this stuff quickly? Uh, at the national level, I would say don't hold your breath. It's um, viewed by the EPA as a state and local issue, and that was before this administration. That's just kind of how it's been set up. Um, EPA is a good kind of facilitator on this, and they you know do a lot of good research and have a lot of good conversations that they help work together on. But at the state level, some money, you know, is coming through. Um, California comes to mind through their cap and trade program. They've already been funding recycling infrastructure for a while. Um, Colorado, 
Massachusetts where I am, and I'm sure I'm leaving others off. There's, you know, there's money around, but a lot of it's coming from private sources. Um, there's a big, there's a group now, investment firm called uh, Closed Loop Partners. They started a few years back with funding from brands and other sources to try to ramp up the pace of infrastructure investment for recycling and link up that kind of recycler and brand conversation more. So I think it's going to be more outside money at the moment than governments. What's driving the uh, the price of uh, of waste commodities? I mean, will this suppress the price of these uh, waste products? Are they I mean, are they essentially useless? Are they unrecyclable, or are they mm-hmm. recyclable? It's just going to be more expensive now, or what's going to happen to sure. the prices of various uh, waste streams? Uh, yeah. So yeah, they fluctuate all the time. And so on the plastic side, a big one to keep in mind is uh, the price of oil is a huge factor in the in the uh, the commodity value for recycled plastics because as it is, you know, still pretty cheap to get virgin oil now. You make virgin plastics probably cheaper than you could recycle on in a lot of cases. It's not across the board, but so that's a something that they're fighting against. Sort of, you know, if you're trying to recycle that plastic, oil is not helping right now. Um, on the fiber side, when we think of fiber, we're talking paper and cardboard. Uh, mixed paper is near worthless at the moment. Granted, that changes a lot and could come back around, but it's not uncommon for um, cities to be paying to get rid of it, as well as recyclers. Um, cardboard is among the more valuable of the mix, and China is still taking it, but it needs to be a lot cleaner. And so that is held steady. And a lot of it's it's hard to pin down like any commodity. There's so many factors going into it, but really what China has done sort of sends ripple effects. Even people who weren't sending their recyclables to China ever, you know, in the Midwest or whatnot are still affected by this because it, you know, everyone goes off the same indexes. And so those commodity prices are down across the board at the moment. Okay. Any, um, anything that you think would be a solution based on your research? Sure. Um, yeah. Getting more accountability and getting a better sense of, who's going to step up to fix this and thinking about a way to better involve the public. I think there's a a lot of confusion, a lot of um, anger at the moment. People feel like they were, didn't know the recycling was going to China, didn't know what was happening, didn't know they were recycling wrong in the first place. We've kind of made it very easy to put it at the curb and forget about it. Um, And part of that is, you know, it's different everywhere, but a lot of people have now what is called single stream recycling. You don't sort your recycling anymore. It, you know, there's a, a cart for your trash and a cart for your recycling. That it, a lot of people feel has contributed to this problem because it's made what goes in there more contaminated. And so anyway, we've all, we've sort of just enabled this culture of buy whatever you want as long as you recycle it, it's okay, even if maybe you didn't need to buy it in the first place or you're recycling wrong. Um, and so now everyone's kind of waking up and figuring out that next big kind of national education campaign, as we saw in the 90s, you know, people are really hungry for that. And there's a lot of talk now about what what that would look like and how to really engage people in a real way about this. And some of that, I think, comes down to just transparency about where it goes, thinking about the people involved in the way that, you know, this China thing was sort of spurred by the working conditions for folks over there, um, working conditions in the recycling facilities here in the U.S. They're kind of the people who sort it at, between the curb and then once it heads off to manufacturing are often pretty poor. And I'm not saying everywhere, some people are doing well and in good safety conditions, or perhaps they're in a union, but there's a lot of places where these are low wage jobs that we're just not seeing. And so raising awareness about that too, kind of making people realize there's a human factor there, I think would be helpful. Yeah. I mean, most people are just, you know, myself included, you put stuff out of the, at the curb, it's gone. Great. You know, right. don't think about it at all from there. With the recycling, I mean, you, you know, I wonder if 
like at Whole Foods, I mean, recycling and all that, but I've heard reports where stuff doesn't even get recycled. They'll have you throw it in multiple bins and they just combine it anyway and throw it away, you know? So it's, I think there's like no transparency on what goes on. Yeah. No. And I, and, um, but there's some signs of hope, for example, here in Massachusetts, our um, state department environmental protection is hired a marketing firm wants to do a statewide PSA. And as part of that, they did a focus group recently to ask people, Hey, what do you know about this? No one had any idea that there were even humans involved after the stuff was collected. So that was a surprise to them. But what I found most uh, striking from that, when they asked people who would be a good spokesperson for this, you know, politician, a celebrity, whatever, almost to a one, everyone said, no, it should be the recycling workers. Now that we know they exist and we know they're part of this, we want to hear from them. And we think that would be impactful. And so I think that's kind of interesting. When people learn about it, they get it and they kind of, they're engaged then. And so I think that would be helpful in any city really to do that. Yeah, that's true. So uh, all right, for, for listeners, how can they find out about what's going on in their community, where their trash is going? And if there is recycling, you know, what's the best way for people to learn more about what's going on? Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's very much the the local level. So, A, if you don't know who picks up your stuff, that means you're pro- it's just done for you. And so you would want to look to your local government, be it your city or county. Uh, ask, yeah, ask questions. Go to your, your town hall, your town council. Look online and just get a sense. Almost everyone is going to have a list of what can and cannot be recycled. And if they don't, call them, ask them, clarify um, and then if you're in a position where you are directly paying for it yourself, if you've contracted a company, uh, you'd go through them and ask them really there's a lot of the same questions. And then, you know, once you have that basic knowledge of what goes where and what's accepted, really the next logical one I would ask is, okay, where's it going after the curb? Because it's not probably not more than an hour or so, if not less away from your house. A lot of times they'll offer tours. Um, sometimes these facilities enjoy offering tours. It's a great way to get people involved. And so take them up on that and, Press them a little bit. And if they don't, if you ask your local government, they say, oh, there's nothing wrong. They either don't know what's going on or they're perhaps not being transparent because no one's recycling program is perfect right now. Even if the financials are working, nobody has a 0% contamination rate. And so it's worth having a, a good, robust conversation right now about that. Have you ever seen an instance of uh, you know, a government or a waste collection paying someone to separate stuff instead of just finding them? Or just saying, hey, I'm not mm. picking it up, F you, you know? Is there any been an, Good question. Has, have you ever seen any incentive programs? I mean, I remember growing up, you know, for like Christmas money, I would take all the soda cans we drank and go crush them. And that mm-hmm. was cool. That seemed to work. But do you see that anywhere today? Um, Not a ton. I mean, so, you know, bottle bills are still, they still exist. Uh, some of the programs are struggling right now. California comes to mind. It, kind of the financials haven't stayed up with the times. And so there's talk of updating that perhaps Raising the deposit amount, you know, it's five cents, really a big incentive for everyone, every more, you know, as much as it used to be. So that's kind of that conversation. And at the local level, not really. I mean, the closest thing we see to incentive, and some wonder if this program still works, but uh, what's called pay as you throw. It's a system where you would basically pay for what goes into your trash can, but either wouldn't pay or would pay a reduced amount for whatever went into your recycling can. And perhaps if you're in a community that does food waste collection, that would be part of that as well. And people have found that's quite successful in reducing the volume of straight trash that people are putting in. They kind of get it. They say, oh, this is costing me money. Um, But it's more of a savings than an earnings in that case. Uh, There are some rewards programs, companies like um, Recycle Bank, Recycling Perks, they'll either team up with a company or perhaps a city to offer incentives for recycling 
maybe that's coupons to a local store or things along those lines, uh, sometimes small gift cards. But yeah, for the most part, there's a sense now, especially from the largest waste management companies, that people shouldn't be getting paid anymore unless say markets come back and we're all going great. But for now, they think it's for it to really set in that this is a service being done. They think people should pay. And that's where that conversation's going at the moment. Yeah, why not have a system where you weigh someone's garbage as you pick it up and throw it in the truck and then they get charged based on the weight? Totally. No, and look, you know, we see that in especially some Asian countries. Um, Seoul is known as a city that's really great at that. Especially, you know, you can have these wonderful modern systems, especially in a larger apartment complex, whatever. You, yeah, you weigh your stuff before you throw it down the trash chute and you scan your ID card and it charges you just like you would any other utility. You know, I mean, it's really no different than water, power, you know, sewer systems. It's all a critical municipal service that's being done that if, you know, if you ever live somewhere where perhaps a strike was on or if you live somewhere where it snows and the waste can't get picked up, it piles up fast. And it's a, it's a public health issue. You know, folks used to yeah. die from cholera and yellow fever in the 1800s because of poor sanitation. And so, we don't really think of it like that, but it is right along those lines with those types of services. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Cole, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, yeah, it seems like, you know, not a big deal at first, but as you talk about it and we've discussed it, it seems to be a bigger and bigger problem. So I appreciate you coming. Likewise. Thank you for the invitation. And yeah, folks um, want to know more, check us out on Waste Dive. And also I'm on Twitter, uh, Cole Rosengren. We're always happy to hear what's happening in your community and, you know, thinking about new ways to move forward on the system. All right. Hold on a second. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.